Good morning. How is everybody this morning? Oh, okay. I will take your word for it, especially with that degree of enthusiasm. It's, uh, I, I know I was back here last week, but since I had flown in and uh, arrived back at the house by uh, 10.30 on Saturday night, I'm not sure that I'm aware that I was here last week. And so uh, I, I did want to share with you, I, I thought originally to just show you some pictures of the new uh, Tribal Bible School, Beacol Tribal Bible School. Uh, I, I, I didn't uh, bring those pictures this week, but I, I, uh, let me just paint a little picture for you of what happened in those meetings. Uh, we had uh, a series of meetings during the course of one long day. Uh, part of it was to reestablish some uh, things that had gone wrong, you know, some glitches in the system, some ghosts in the machine. Uh, and and uh, God enabled us to, to just deal with that. And, and then we went from there to talking about the, uh, the dynamics, the mechanics of the Tribal Bible School, the Beacol Tribal Bible School as it opens up. Classes, by the way, start a week from tomorrow. And so uh, God has just worked that out uh, remarkably for us. I, I still have no idea how all the buildings have been built. There are, I think, 11 buildings on the property now that have been put up and uh, students are coming in, the teachers are already there, and uh, it's been a remarkable thing. But I've explained it to you before, and I know this is just a lot of names and terminology to you. It's, it's a rock-solid foundation to me, but uh, uh, the Mangyan Tribal Church Association is made up of the leadership of uh, the Mangyan Tribal Churches. The Mangyan have, uh, there's eight different tribes that make up the Mangyan group, and uh, there, six of them were represented there at that meeting. So there were, there were six representatives from the Mangyan Tribal Church Association. The Bukalot missionaries were there, so that brings us up to seven different tribal groups represented. Well, eight, actually, different tribal groups represented. And then there were even members, uh, representatives from the Agda, uh, Bikol Tribal Church Association, which are the Agda themselves, which has been the, the greatest encouragement to my heart to see those people there and to, to see them stand up and, and, and take leadership roles when, well, I just, I just never expected it. I didn't have faith great enough to believe it. But we talked through the mechanics and the dynamics and who's going to teach what and, you know, all of that. And, and then finally we were sitting there and, and uh, one of the guys from the Mangyan Tribal Church Association, he's fidgeting. I mean, he was just Holy Spirit fidgeting, I reckon. Uh, but he was fidgeting and, and finally he said, uh, I just, I got to say something. I, I just got to say this. And he stood up and uh, just spoke from the depths of his heart, entirely in extemporaneous, impromptu. Uh, it wasn't following notes, but he, he preached a sermon. Uh, I would love to preach a sermon with that much power someday. Uh, it was just all about his burning passion to see tribal people all over the Philippines reach, to see this good news go out from there into, into other places. And, um, and when he was done, he sat down and another guy popped up and it was, it was it was holy ghost popcorn for the rest, for, you know, for about an hour there as one after the other got up. And I was sitting next to Steve Hagen, and Steve turned to me at one point. He said, Dad, you want to say something? And I said, no, I'm having the time of my life right now, you know, just sitting here listening to the hearts of these men. And um, finally, it came over here to this guy over here named Alvin. I, I have a picture of his uncle, Agta guy, up in my office, and and Alvin stood up, and, and he was going to say something, and they asked him, you know, when you're done talking, would you just close in prayer? And, and Alvin agreed to do that. And then somebody from the Mangyan group, I never did see who it was, uh, spoke up and said, we want to hear the old guy talk. <laughs> and I had no idea who, they were, who that was, you know, because <laughs> I don't see myself that way. But I, I, um, it was a wonderful privilege to just be able to, to, uh, to share with them from the depths of my heart. To know that I was in a room full of people whose hearts beat just like mine. And, uh, and to see that passion that, uh, that God has built in, in, that, in those groups. And, and I, I continue to truly believe that God is, is building an epicenter for an earthquake that's about to strike the Philippines that will just scatter in every direction. And as I was talking, I encouraged them about the, you know, Brazil and, and the, because I had just come from there and, and how passionate they are about reaching the 240 or so tribes uh, there in, in South America. Uh, and 
And I even suggested, you know, maybe we could form a partnership between you and them. And, and then, because I told them, you know, when you guys get done, lift up your eyes and look at the fields. Because once the 240 are reached here in South America, there's still 2,000 over in Asia. And we'll be over there waving our arms and just asking you to come over and help us if you'll take the time to look and they got excited about that possibility so I don't know how that's going to work because uh, you know we can have FaceTime I suppose I mean that's a possibility but nobody w speaks anybody else's language and so uh, you know we'd be kind of stuck without some translators I suppose we could go from Tagalog to English to to Portuguese through anyway we, uh, I'm not going to worry about that right now God is on the move and uh, he's privileged us as a church to be part of that, to be involved in that. I know that, uh, that, that many of you stood behind the building of the property, the purchasing of the property. And um, when we said yes to this project back in January, I, I asked God as my witness. I, I was uncertain that we would ever reach the day that is going to come a week from tomorrow when classes begin there and those students show up to be trained to reach out into other tribal groups. So thank you for your, your passion about that and for your concern in that. And I apologize again for not having pictures. I think if you saw pictures of the buildings, you might say, hmm. <laughs> uh, just because, you know, they don't look like Harvard at all. Not at all, thankfully. Because uh, the ivy would just look silly on the buildings that we put up. But uh, it, uh, it's, uh, I, I, I trust that that painting that small picture for you gives you some insight into what God is doing underneath all of that. This morning, I need to turn this on. This morning, we'll be continuing our studies in Paul's first letter to Timothy in a series entitled, Be Strong in Grace. And this is part 25 and entitled, The Pillar and Foundation of the Truth. And we'll be looking at 1 Timothy chapter 3, Verses 14 to 16. Don't believe what it says there. I forgot to change it. Last week, we unpacked 1 Timothy 3.13 and looked at that verse through the lens of the story of a story uh, about Stephen from the book of Acts, chapters 6 and 7. We all know that by now that Stephen was a deacon at that church in Jerusalem in the months, literally in the months that followed the crucifixion, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. And at the time that Stephen became a deacon, there was only one church, the church there at Jerusalem. And that means that Stephen was one of the first ever deacons. So he, in essence, set the bar. He set the standard for how a deacon could do his or her job. Stephen waited on tables, and, and that came from the original meaning of the word deacon. You'll remember an issue rose there, arose there at the church in Jerusalem where the church had a ministry of feeding the older widows, and um, uh, we'll understand that term, older widows, when we get a little further along in 1 Timothy. But um, they, they were feeding the older widows, and for some reason, the Hebrew-speaking widows were getting the food that they needed, but the Greek-speaking widows were not getting the food that they needed. And so the apostles and the elders could have busied themselves with meeting that need. I mean, it's a pressing need in the church, so they could have done that. Uh, but everyone knew that the primary responsibility of the elders was the, their devotion to the word of God and to prayer. So the elders continued to do what they had been chosen and ordained to do, and they asked the church to choose seven men. Uh, seven men who would uh, make sure that those who needed food got it. So Stephen got busy waiting tables because he'd been chosen and ordained to do just that. And Stephen was a faithful man, so he didn't hesitate. But Stephen served in other ways as well. You'll remember from the story. The Spirit of God gave, the, gave Stephen the ability to perform miracles and signs. And Stephen used that as a platform for sharing the good news about Jesus with people all over the city of Jerusalem. And of course... That's through the attention of the Sanhedrin, the Jewish governing body, because the Sanhedrin was busy trying to stamp out this Jesus cult, as they saw it, that was drawing so many people away from the temple and from the old covenant. They put Stephen on trial for blasphemy, something that was a capital offense in first century Israel. With his life hanging in the balance, Stephen demand, the, the Sanhedrin demanded that Stephen defend himself and Stephen didn't opt for protecting himself or his own rights, but chose instead to boldly tell those powerful men about Jesus. 
It seems that Stephen had the right to remain silent. He just didn't have the ability. And in the end, Stephen told them the truth about Jesus, and, well, they killed him for it. But we chose to look at that story because of something that Paul said to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 3. Verse, verse 13 says that deacons that serve well gain an excellent standing and great assurance in their faith in Christ Jesus. And part of that, of what that probably means in practical terms, is that if a deacon serves well in that role, in the role of a deacon, that qualifies, he qualifies himself by that for greater responsibility within the church and may well find himself chosen and ordained as an elder at some point. But that isn't all that it means. Because something came to light in the final moments of Stephen's life that helps us to more fully understand what an excellent standing and great assurance in their faith can mean. Because in the last moments of his life, Stephen saw the heavens opened and he saw Jesus standing on the right hand of God. Now we know, as we talked about last week from the book of Hebrews, that Jesus is now seated at the right hand of God because of the once-for-all sacrifice that he made uh, when he offered himself there on the cross. But Stephen didn't see Jesus sitting at the Father's right hand. He saw Jesus standing at the Father's right hand. And we had the opportunity to imagine the moment when Stephen entered heaven after being martyred for his faith. The King of kings and Lord of lords, the Lord of glory, was standing to welcome Stephen to his heavenly home to the place that Jesus had prepared for him in his father's house. Remember, that was one of Jesus' promises in the, in the upper room. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself so that where I am, there you may be also. Stephen passed in an instant from the awfulness and darkness of being executed for his faith to the awesomeness and light of being welcomed and honored by the king of glory. Jesus stood to welcome Stephen. And while we don't want to make a, a, a play on words, that is an excellent standing indeed. He received an excellent standing in response to his, his, uh, his service. And besides that, at the moment when Stephen's faith was being put to the ultimate test, you have to believe that, that anybody going through that would wonder, is this real? If my Savior is not going to protect me in this moment, is it possible that I have been mistaken? But remember, great assurance is one of the things that, that the people who serve well in that role receive. At the moment when his faith was being put to the ultimate test, he received the ultimate assurance that he was believing the right thing because God opened heaven and allowed Stephen to see where he was headed. That's what Paul meant when he said that those who serve well gain an excellent standing and great assurance in their faith. And as we finish this review, there's a passage that I wanted to share with you last week, but I just ran out of time, as I often do. It's a passage that adds, I think it's an extra helping of mystery to the moment when we receive our rewards in recognition of how faithfully we've served. Look with me at Revelation chapter 2. Revelation chapter 2 and verse 17. Whoever has ears, so I don't know if that includes everybody here, but whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give that person a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to the one who receives it. I got to tell you this morning, I'm not confident that I fully understand what this means, but, but I have it pictured in my head as an intimate moment that you and you alone will share with Jesus. He's going to hand you a white stone in that quiet moment between the two of you, and on that stone, he will have written the name that he has chosen for you. And I'm confident that that name will reflect the way he sees you. And what makes it mysterious is the fact that the rest of us won't have any idea what name Jesus will have given you. That's what it says up there. It will be as a reflection of his heart for you, and it will be just between you and him. I cannot even begin to imagine the glory of this moment because he's going to know who you are and not only know who you are, he's going to know what you've done and he's going to give you a name that's commensurate with what you've done. He's actually going to see you, those of you who worry about being seen. And you know that I have to say at this point that 
that Stephen didn't receive that reward and recognition because he lived in keeping with some idea or philosophy or political bias. Stephen received that reward and recognition because he followed Jesus and prioritized God's kingdom over his own personal desires, over his own personal rights, and over his own personal safety. He set all of that aside in exactly the same way Jesus set all of that aside. He hazarded his own, Jesus hazarded his own life, his own safety, in order to die for us. And that's what Stephen did that day. And if we ever hope to receive anything that resembles the reward and recognition that Stephen received, we must learn to live as Stephen lived. That's how it works. Because I don't know about you, but the older I get, the more powerfully I want to serve well so that I will be able to hear Jesus say, well done. You have been a good and faithful servant. Enter the joy of your Lord. As we make the transition from what we learned last week to what we'll be talking about this morning, I want to begin by asking you a question. And, and here it is. If I were to ask you what or who is the pillar and foundation of the truth, what would you say? Let me ask it again. What or who is the pillar and foundation of the truth? Take a minute to visualize this. We all know what a foundation does, right? It holds up the pillars, and, and it supports the pillars, and the pillars support the weight of the roof. So you'd want something that was really substantial if you were going to be, you know, whoever this is, whatever this is, it has to be something totally substantial because it's holding up the weight of the roof. So what or who is the pillar and foundation of the truth? Now, in answer to that, some people might say, God's Word. And I'm, I'm not looking at anybody, but some people might say that. After all, Brian and I are always asking you to build your lives on God's Word instead of any of the other influences you may have in your life on a daily basis or a weekly basis. So if we're supposed to build on God's Word, that sounds like pillar and foundation. Wouldn't that mean that God's Word is the pillar and foundation of the truth? And that's where I might say to you, is that your final answer? And you could say, yes, lock it in. And to that I would say... <laughs> Sorry. That was annoying, but thank you for playing. Uh, others might say, well, when Jesus was here, he said that he was the way, the truth, and the life. So I'm going to go with Jesus on this one. Jesus is the pillar and foundation of the truth. And I just want to say that that's a much safer answer. Much safer answer. Because anytime anybody asks you a Bible question, Jesus is going to be the safest answer that you can give them. That's just, it may not be the right answer, but it's certainly the safest answer. He, he is the answer. And, and I mean, if someone asks you a question that doesn't come from the Bible, Jesus is the safest answer that you can give him because Jesus is the answer to all of our problems. I remember we used to sing that when, when we were kids. Christ is the answer to all of our problems. So... Is Jesus your final answer? Is Jesus the pillar and foundation of the truth? Lock it in! <laughs> oh, sorry. Now it's really annoying, but thank you again for, for playing. So if it's not God's word, and it's not Jesus, who or what is the pillar and foundation of the truth? That is a really sturdy phrase, a really reliable phrase. And if it's not God's word and it's not Jesus, who or what is it? Well, I don't like answering a question with a question, but I think that another question might be helpful here. Who is the light of the world? And I can hear you now. Oh, come on, Jay. That's, that's an easy one. Jesus is the light of the world. I thought you said that wasn't the right answer, Jay, but Jesus is certainly the right answer here. Jesus is the light of the world. And, of course, I'd have to agree with you on that point because uh, in that regard, uh, John 8, 12 says, when Jesus spoke again to the people, he said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. That sounds pretty definitive. Jesus said to all of them, I am the light of the world. So how could I argue with that? Well, we could think about what Jesus said later in John 9, 5. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. 
But Jesus is not physically present here on planet Earth anymore, so how does that work? Well, in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, 13 to 15, Jesus said, You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people put a lamp and light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. Did you catch that? You are the light of the world. We are the light of the world. By the way, there's a freebie there. You are also the salt of the earth. Oops. You are also the salt of the earth. Um, unless, of course, as you saw, let me go back there. Unless, of course, you've lost your saltiness. Then, then we don't qualify as the salt of the earth anymore. You're the light of the world. So let's just, you're the light of the world uh, unless you fail to let your light shine. So let, let's do this again, all right? And I need, I need class participation on this one just to make sure that you're awake and actually catch this. Who you can say to this, I am, we are. It's kind of like an exercise. I am, we are. Who's the salt of the earth? Excellent. Who's the light of the world? You hear what you're saying about yourselves? I, this is pretty heavy-duty stuff. You're actually claiming to be the salt of the earth and the light of the world, and that's okay. Do you know why? Because that's who you are. So let's try it one more time. Who's the salt of the earth? Who's the light of the world? And now with that hint firmly in place, oops, with that hint firmly in place, who is the pillar and foundation of the truth? You ready? Awesome. <laughs> that was excellent. But do you believe it? Do you believe it? That's still annoying, that noise, but, but at, least we, at least we got the answer right. You know, we scored, uh, I don't know how many points. I'm going I'm to give you a million four hundred thousand points for that. Or maybe you can congratulate somebody near you. I don't know. Just, just you know, give him the, her, or her the, the thumbs up. Still, it kind of sounded like you're going to need some convincing uh, because it was more of an I am, we are, then I, I am, we are, you know, and I, I don't, we don't shout in this church, of course, we don't do that, but, uh, but I am, we are, the, the long and short of it is, is this, I, I hope that you won't be offended, I hope that you won't be intimidated, but the answer to the question, who, what or who is the pillar and foundation of the truth is you. If you're a follower of Jesus today, you are the salt of the earth, you are the light of the world, and you are the pillar and foundation of the truth. And having laid that burden on your shoulders, let's start unpacking the passage for this morning. Of course, we always start unpacking a passage by reading it together. And so if you would, please stand with me as we read 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 14 to 16. Although I hope to come to you soon, I am writing you these instructions so that if I am delayed, you will know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and foundation of the truth. Beyond all question, the mystery from which true godliness springs is great. He appeared in the flesh, was vindicated by the Spirit, was seen by angels, was preached among the nations, was believed on in the world, was taken up in glory. You can take your seats, confident that God always blesses us with his truth anytime we take time in his word. There are, so many occurred to me, but there are several stories that I could tell you from God's word that would speak to the issues that that, that Paul raises to Timothy in this passage this morning. But to me, one of them stands head and shoulders. I know that sounds like shampoo, but one of them sounds, stands head and shoulders above all the rest. You see, the passage for this morning actually contains an ancient hymn. An ancient hymn. Truth 
that the early church put to music. And in the case of this hymn, the truths that they chose to put to music uh, chronicle the life and ministry of Jesus. That's what you just read. It was a story of the life and ministry of Jesus. And we'll look at that hymn in a few minutes, but right now, it only makes sense for me to tell you a story about the life and ministry of Jesus. As the story begins this morning, Jesus has already died and been buried and then burst out of the tomb three days later. Since the time of his death and death, burial, and resurrection, about 30 years have gone by, and a man named Luke has already taken the time to research and write about all of that that Jesus did in a book that bears his name, the book of Luke. And now he'll say in the first words of the book of Acts that he's taken the time to research and write about what happened after Jesus died and was buried and rose again. Jesus had done something absolutely amazing, and a group of men called apostles are about to follow up on what Jesus did. And as a reminder, just in case you think that an apostle and an epistle are husband and wife, I can tell you that they're not, again. But I can also tell you that an apostle is simply a sent one. It's not a highfalutin category, you know, it's not a, a boss kind of a title, it's a, it's a sent one. Someone that has been sent on a, on a, on a job, sent with a mission. And the account of what the apostles did begins right here during this picnic on the Mount of Olives when Jesus gathered with his followers. It begins on the very day when Jesus was taken up into heaven that we now call the Ascension. It begins with some instructions that he gave the apostles about how they were to occupy their time after he had left them. The day of Jesus' departure was a day that the apostles were dreading. And now the moment has finally come. With that background, this is the story from God's Word from Acts chapter 1, verses 1 to 11. We all know, I trust, that Jesus came into this world to suffer and die for us. He was crucified on the cross of Calvary and then buried in a borrowed tomb. His body stayed in the tomb for three days and then God raised him from the dead. After he suffered like that on our behalf and then rose again, he appeared to a small group of followers in an upper room, the upper room, where they'd been hiding from the reprisals that they were expecting from the Jews. After that first time when he appeared to them, he appeared many more times over the next 40 days. He met with them and he ate with them and he taught them about the kingdom of God all during that stretch. And he proved to them, I love this idea, he proved to them without question that he had escaped death. That's why he was there again. One day, they were having a picnic of sorts on the Mount of Olives when Jesus came with some very specific instructions. Do not leave Jerusalem, he said. Stay and wait there in Jerusalem until you receive the gift that my Father promised you, the one I have often told you about. You'll want to wait for this gift, Jesus said, because John the baptizer baptized you with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. After he said that, they, they gathered around him in a tight circle and they started asking questions. Lord, they said, are you going at this time to restore the kingdom to Israel? Jesus' answer was quick and simple. It's not for you to know the times or dates that the Father has chosen to restore his physical kingdom here on earth. But what I can tell you is this. You will receive power. When the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and in all of Samaria and unto the uttermost parts of the earth, the very ends of the earth. And when he had said this, he was taken up before their very eyes and a cloud received him from their sight. His followers were all left standing on that hillside, gazing up into the clouds, their mouths agape, staring intently into the sky as he was going up and then finally disappeared. And suddenly, two men, dressed in white apparel, stood beside them. And, and they had something to say. You men of Galilee, they said, why are you just standing there looking into the sky? This same Jesus, who's been taken from you into heaven, will come back someday in the same way you have seen him go there. And that's the story. From God's Word. Let's unpack this story to understand the passage that we'll be, that we'll be looking at. And uh, 
Luke is writing this historical account to a man named Theophilus, and we really have no idea who Theophilus is, literally no idea, because his name is only mentioned in the first verse of the book of Acts and the third verse of the book of Luke. Those are the only two mentions of his name. So we don't know if this is a real guy or just a pen name. that, that We don't know. I, I suspect he was a real guy that uh, I, I kind of like him. Whoever he is, I kind of like him because he seems to be a guy who wants to know the rest of the story. And I have great respect for anybody who wants to know the rest of the story. Now, I'm sure you're, you've heard Brian or, or me use the words, the finished work from the pulpit up here. And by that, we mean the finished work of Christ. He was executed on a cross. He was buried and he was raised from the dead by God the Father on the third day. And he did all of that for us. We had been sentenced to death, and he died in our place. And God the Father proved that he was satisfied with the sacrifice that Christ had made on our behalf by raising Christ from the dead. That was what was behind the resurrection. What Christ did for us, he did once for all, and that's why we call it the finished work. And yet here in the first verse of the book of Acts, when Luke begins to talk about what Jesus did, he speaks of it as what Jesus began to do and teach. He spoke to the finished work in the book of Luke, and now he's calling it what Jesus began to do and teach. He's implying, I believe, that Jesus finished what the Father had sent him here to do, and his finished work signaled the beginning of more work that someone else was going to do as the work of redemption gave way to the work of reconciliation. After Jesus finished the work of redemption, the church began the work of reconciliation. And that's what we learned as we made our way through the book of Acts in 2015. We learned that Jesus finished the work that redeemed us and provided salvation for all people, but now it falls to his followers to go everywhere announcing the good news to every people group on earth, the good news about what Jesus did. And the reason that we go everywhere announcing the good news is so that men, women, and children of all people groups can be reconciled to God. In other words, Jesus provided right relationship with God and his followers promote right relationship with God. The two go hand in hand. The finished work was also what Jesus began to do and teach. Remember what Jesus said, I will build my church. But as we say that, we need to be clear that Jesus has no plan to be going back and forth from heaven planting churches. He has no intention of doing that at all. So how has he planned to finish the job of building his church? I will build my church, he said, and yet he's gone. So how's he going to finish that? And (laughs) no buzzers or anything on this one. That is the easiest question I've asked this morning. How has he planned to finish the job of building his church? He's planned to use us. That's the plan that's been in place now for for 2,000 years. That's how we got to be the salt of the earth. That's how we got to be the light of the world. That's how we got to be the pillar and foundation of the truth. How do I know that? Well, that's because of what it says in verses 14 and 15. Although I hope to come to you soon, I'm writing you these instructions so that if I'm delayed, you will know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household which is the church of the living God, the pillar and foundation of the truth. Those are Paul's words to Timothy about you. Remember, Paul's been explaining to us most recently how to find, choose, and ordain deacons and how to find, choose, and ordain elders. And Brian and I have been saying, this is important stuff, right? I think, I'm sure I've heard you say that. This is important stuff. You're going to want to understand this, and now you know why we've been saying that, because of this last comment that Paul makes immediately after talking about the qualifications of deacons and elders. We've taken the time that we have unpacking these truths about elders and deacons, because elders and deacons are absolutely vital to what Jesus is doing in this age of grace. They are a huge part of what Jesus is doing in this age of grace. And to our dis 
credit. I'll say this out loud. Brian and I have both said maybe you don't want to be an elder or deacon. Maybe elders and deacons are, are not important to you. And if you want to say that elders and deacons are not important to you, if you want to say that you don't want to be an elder or a deacon, be careful as you say that, that you are not saying, I don't want to be part of what Jesus is doing in this age of grace. Because even if you're not a deacon or an elder, he has a role for you. He has a part for you to play. You see, Paul took the time to write all this stuff down because he had a specific goal in mind. I really believe this. He wanted us to catch fire with a passion for finishing the job that Jesus has left us here to do. The same fire that consumed Paul and Peter and James and John and that lowly deacon Stephen to the point where the fire in their hearts beat back the very fires of hell. Their light shone in the darkness. And the darkness was never able to overcome it. They were unstoppable. And now Paul wants us to be unstoppable too. We were stopped by COVID. But we don't have to stay stopped. We were stopped by social media, but we don't have to stay stopped. We can go back to God's Word and let that be the driver in our lives. We can stop living like followers of social media and start living like followers of Jesus again. We are the salt of the earth unless we've lost our saltiness. We are the light of the world unless we've hidden our light under something else. We are the pillar and foundation of the truth unless we are getting our wisdom and our guidance from something other than God's word. We are the church. We are the church. And it's high time that we said no to anyone and anything that would seek to take that away from us. So where are all, where's all this coming from? Well, it's coming from a very mysterious ancient hymn. I mentioned at the beginning that, that this passage for this morning actually contains an ancient hymn. And a hymn is, a, uh, is always powerful because in this case, this hymn is truth that the early church put to music. Like those songs that we sang this morning, I am confident after some of the conversations that I've had with folks this week that God did those songs just for you. Just for you. Just for you. But hymns that are truth that are put to music, they, they do that with the goal of making those truths easier to remember because the, the tune just kind of gets stuck in our head, you know, and we can listen to it again and again. And in the, cases of in the case of this hymn that's the, uh, there in 1 Timothy, the truths that they chose to put to music chronicle, as we said, the life and ministry of Jesus. And I love what Paul does with this ancient hymn because he says, listen to this, he says without a doubt, that the truths contained in this hymn are a great mystery because they are the truths from which true godliness springs. Stop and think about that. The truths contained in this hymn are the truths from which true godliness springs. Don't take my word for it. Look at verse 16. Beyond all question, the mystery from which true godliness springs is great. He appeared in the flesh, was vindicated by the Spirit, was seen by angels, was preached among the nations, was believed on in the world, was taken up in glory. In the English, just 30 words. But they form a great mystery because all true godliness springs from those 30 words. And I am not even going to begin to try to uncover all of the mystery in this ancient hymn. But I would, listen to me, if you don't get anything else, get this. I would encourage you to sit down with this passage this week and pray through the words of that ancient hymn. Ask God to show you the mystery that it contains, the godliness that's driven by those simple words. And I promise you, the time that you spend doing that will do more for your heart than anything, anything you can find on social media. And in the meantime... I'll do you the favor of not trying to sing this hymn for you. 
I, uh, that's, that's my gift to you this morning, whether or not you deserve although you do deserve it. That's the prize that you have won for getting that last question. Finally, it took you a while, but anyway. Um, I'd, in the meantime, I'm not going to sing it for you, but, but you can make up your own tune. That's what I would do in prayer. That's what I will do in prayer. I'll make up my own tune as I pray through this, and I will sing this to myself and to my Savior this week. And I challenge you to do the same thing. But since this passage ends with music, I, I think that it would be fitting for our, t- our time here together this morning to end with music. We've been talking about the plan that Jesus has to use us as he finishes the plan, his plan, to build his church. A church so massive and sturdy and powerful that the very gates of hell will not be able to prevail against it. And when I think of the role that he's asked me to play in building his church here in this community and around the world, there's a music video that I take the time to listen to over and over and over again. To me, this music video is a, is a beautiful expression of what I think is going to happen when we finally stand in the presence there in our heavenly home. I've shown it to you before, but I want you to watch it this morning with new eyes, understanding that you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. And you are the pillar and foundation of the truth if you are a follower of Jesus today. You'll recognize the song, I'm sure of it, and for a while you'll be able to sing along. And while you can sing along, please do. But fairly quickly, you won't be able to sing along anymore because a man from Malaysia will begin to sing in Bahasa Malayu, the language of Malaysia. He'll sing for a moment, and then someone else will pick up where he left off, and once again, you won't be able to sing along unless you speak Russian. I'll try to keep you up to date with what language you're hearing. So sing along when it's English, all right? But can I ask you to do me a favor? When you don't speak the language, the song is being sung in, can you just join me in marveling at how far the good news has gone? around this old world. And while you're marveling, breathe a prayer for the 6,500 unreached groups who cannot sing this song because the truth of this song has not yet reached them and has not been translated into their language. And as you marvel and as you pray, ask Jesus what part he would have you play in speeding the good news to those who are still waiting to hear it. Please quiet your hearts and commune with your Savior and your Lord who wants to be their Savior and Lord too. Join me.
my heart inside out every time I watch it. John Piper has said that missions exists because worship does not. There's so many places around the world today that they can't sing that song because they don't know how true that song is. They don't understand how great is our God because the only testimony has been the stars in their culture and language. In closing, let me read the passage to you one more time. Although I hope to come to you soon, I'm writing these instructions so that if I'm delayed, you will know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household, which is the church of the living God, 
the pillar and foundation of the truth. Beyond all question, the mystery from which God, true godliness springs is great. He appeared in the flesh, was vindicated by the Spirit, was seen by angels, was preached among the nations, was believed on in the world, was taken up in glory. Will you stand with me in the presence? Our Father and our God, our hearts are just thrilled to hear these languages from around the world where your name is being lifted up, where, where proclamations are being made. How great is our God? We want to say that to you right now, right here in this place this morning, joining our hearts together to proclaim that. God, we're aware that in some of those places, they make that proclamation with the threat of death or prison, or re-education camps. We know that it's not even legal to say the things that we're saying here this morning so freely in many countries around the world. And we pray that you would sustain those believers in those places and keep them motivated, God, to continue getting the word out. We pray that you would, you would raise up laborers. The harvest field is, is wide, God, and it's ripe and ready to be taken in. What's needed is laborers, and we pray that you would look in our midst for laborers who can go into our community, most certainly, but for laborers who can go around the world to take the gospel where it's never been for the sake of your glory, for the good of those people that are there. And in the meantime, Father, we're just going to stay at it here. We're going to love you with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength, and we're going to do what you ask us to do. Help us to find our footing again, we pray, by your grace. In the name of the Lord Jesus, amen and amen. Well, I want you to remember that you're part of a team, and Jesus has a plan for the part you must play. And truth be told, we only have one captain and one coach, but as a simple stand-in for him this morning, it's time for me to say, ready? Go get him, Potter's house.